thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, for the past two weeks, we have enjoyed Dr. John Dixon, so it's back to a more average approach to things um, today. Um, We finished our study of the book of Revelation a few weeks back, or at least our study of a portion of the book of Revelation. We looked at those seven letters to the seven churches, and it's been a debate in my mind as to what to do from here. And my initial thought, and it's probably something that I'm going to take up in the fall, my initial thought was to teach a course on Anglicanism, because I'm well aware of the fact that there are a number of people out there who come from other traditions, perhaps the Presbyterian Church or Methodist or Baptist Church, or maybe even a few um, Roman Catholics out there, former Roman Catholics, and many people don't understand what Anglicanism really is. Even people who have been raised in the Episcopal Church or in the Anglican tradition if your only real exposure to it has been St. Philip's or the Diocese of South Carolina, you may not have a real sense of what Anglicanism is. And if you come from those other traditions, it can be somewhat confusing. If you come in and you're from a Baptist church, you're wondering why those people bow when the cross goes by or why the clergy wear robes or why people bow or genuflect when they come into their pews or why we have communion in the way that we do and why we're liturgical, why we have these set prayers that we pray week in and week out, and why is there this thing called the Book of Common Prayer? What's that really all about? If those are questions that are going through your minds, a class on Anglicanism would probably prove fruitful. So that's what I initially decided to do. But then I started to do the work. (laughs) Not that I'm afraid of the work, but I counted the number of weeks that we have until we break for the summer. And it quickly became apparent that we're trying to cover literally centuries of history and theology and tradition. And I know my own limitations, and it was obvious to me we were never going to get through all of that material in the time that we had allotted. So what I decided to do was something different. We may very well pick up a study of Anglicanism in the fall, because I think it is an important subject. and It is important to understand not only what we do, but why we do it. But... Um, I decided that what we will do in the next few weeks until we take a break for the summer is to study one of Paul's epistles. Um, We're going to take a look at his letter to the Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to the letter to the Philippians. Uh, Today is going to be basically an introduction to it. Now you may say to yourself, well, um, why did he choose Philippians? Uh, There are a number of reasons to choose Philippians. First of all, it's a short letter. So um, we can get through it probably, in the allotted amount of time. Uh, It's only about four chapters, Philippians, as opposed to 1st or 2nd Corinthians or Romans or something like that. The other thing is this. It is a joyful letter. Of all the epistles that Paul authored, this is by far the most joyful, all of them. It is just filled with confidence and anticipation. A great example of that is if you have your Bibles and you turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, this is sort of a a summation of the, the tenor of the book. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always, 
Again, I will say rejoice. Let your your reasonableness be known to everyone. For the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now those passages are filled with confidence and hopefulness, and that is really the spirit of the epistle to the Philippians. And I think that that is something that we 21st century Christians really need to have. We need to be joyful Christians. I have a collection of some of the writings of C.S. Lewis in my office, and they're under the title, The Joyful Christian. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is love, what? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But joy is right up there at the very top. And what's unfortunate is that there are far too many Christians in the world, far too many people in the church who are anything but joyful. Daniel Webster, the great American statesman of the 19th century, who was perhaps America's greatest orator, certainly the greatest orator of that time period, the 1850s, Uh, Daniel Webster was once asked if he had always planned to go into politics, and he commented, no, on one occasion I seriously considered the ministry. And somebody said, well, why didn't you go into the ministry? And Daniel Webster said, because all the ministers I knew looked and acted so much like undertakers. (laughs) What a sad commentary on the church, isn't it? And what a sad commentary on ministers. We need to be joyful people. It is our joy that will attract people to us. I I think sometimes our depictions of Jesus in artwork or even the attitude that we have uh, of Jesus from Sunday school classes is that Jesus was a rather serious person. And indeed, he dealt with a very serious subject, the salvation of mankind. But Jesus was a joyful person. One of my favorite depictions of Jesus Christ in artwork is a painting that was done in the 1960s, and it's called The Laughing Jesus. And it shows Jesus with his head thrown back and his, wide, his mouth wide open and his eyes shut, and he's laughing. Let me tell you something. Jesus must have been an attractive, joyful individual. That's why people were drawn to him in droves, like moths to a flame. Jesus had something that other people did not. He had something the Pharisees did not. Yes, when he spoke, he spoke as one having authority. But Jesus was the kind of person who was an attracted personality. And you and I should be attractive. Our faith should not be something that repels people. It should be something that draws people in. And unfortunately, we oftentimes don't really understand what joy is. And part of the reason for that is the world, for every Christian virtue that there is, the world offers a cheap substitute. Now, if I give my wife a brand new necklace, and it's solid gold, it's going to last for a very long time. Now, I can give her another necklace that looks just like that, but it's gold-plated. But what's going to happen to it over the course of time? If she wears it to the gym, or she wears it in the shower, or she wears it on a run, what's going to happen to it? I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. The luster is going to dim. And sooner or later, she's going to notice this sort of greenish-black mark all around her (laughs) neck. That's the way it is with the world. The world is always offering us something that 
on the face looks like the genuine article, but it's really not. And as time goes by, it begins to wear thin. For example, the church speaks of the love of God. That's what, that's what God offers us, love. Now, you all know that in Greek there are different words for love. The highest form of love is agape. It means a self-sacrificing, self-emptying kind of love. It is the kind of love that God has for us. God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave. It is a giving love. It is a love that thinks of another before it thinks of self. That's how the Bible understands love. When the world portrays love in the media, on television, what does it normally depict? Not love, but sex. The Greeks had a word for that. The word was eros, from which we get the term erotic. That is the only Greek word for love that does not appear anywhere in the New Testament. Did you know that? So what the world depicts as love is something very different from the biblical understanding of love. And the same is true when it comes to joy. Joy is a Christian virtue. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the result of God's presence in your life. And it is something that you can experience no matter what is going on in your life. What does the world offer us as the cheap substitute? Happiness. The problem with happiness is this. It is dependent upon your circumstances. If everything's going your way, if all of your friends like you at this particular moment, or you just hit the lottery, or you got a good tax refund, you may be happy. But what happens when your friends don't like you? when somebody betrays you, when, when things are going uh, terrible in your life, when the doctor gives you the long face, then you're not happy, you see. Everything is going to be dependent upon your circumstances, upon the conditions in your life. It's going to be subject to the vagaries and fashions of the culture. Joy is not dependent upon those things. You can have joy even if the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. Because joy is not dependent upon your circumstances. It depends upon the unwavering love, mercy, and presence of God in your life. So if there's one thing that we Christians need, if we're going to be successful in evangelizing the world, we need joy. We just do. And Paul's epistle to the Philippians is all about joy. So those are two reasons why I decided we should take a look at the epistle to the Philippians, um, because it is a short letter, and I think we can get through it in the weeks that we have. And the second reason, it is a very needed corrective and encouragement for us as Christian people in the world today. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at Paul's epistle to the Philippians. If you have your Bibles, as I said, open them to chapter 1. And what we're going to do is we're just going to read through verses 1 and 2 today. And I'll give you a little bit of background about this letter. Paul, as you know, wrote letters to churches generally, not always, but generally to churches that he had established, and he had some sort of a pastoral relationship to them. Now, there were exceptions to that, of course. The epistle to the Romans, which many consider to be Paul's weightiest and greatest letter, was not written to a church that he had founded. The church in Rome was already in existence at the time that Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. But most of the time, Paul was writing letters to churches that he had established uh, whether to encourage them or to correct some error in their life, but it was a father in God speaking to his children. And that's what Philippians is as well. 
So, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Uh, This was a church, unlike the Roman church, that Paul did help to establish. Uh, He established it as part of his second missionary journey. Now, if you know anything about Paul's missionary journeys, you know that it all begins in Acts chapter 13. Uh, I like to say that Acts chapter 13 is a real turning point in the story of the early church. Up to that point, the Christians shared their faith, but they only shared their faith as the opportunities presented themselves. Uh, I like to say, for example, Peter and John were one day on their way up to the temple at the appointed time of prayer. They were on their way to church, if you will, and they encountered a man who was begging at the temple gate called Beautiful the Golden Gate, the main entrance into the temple complex. And this man held up his tin cup or whatever it was that they begged with in those days, hoping for alms. And Peter comes up to him and he says, silver and gold we don't have. We're just common fisher folk. But what we do have, we'll give to you. And Peter takes the man by the hand and he says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And we're told immediately the man felt a strengthening in his ankles He felt the ability to stand and to walk this man who'd been lame his whole life. And and he's thrilled. And he's leaping and he's jumping and he's praising God and he's following these men into the temple. They're late for church. They've got to get in there. They're on their way in and he's leaping and jumping. And soon a crowd gathers and Peter realizes that a crowd has gathered. He has an opportunity to share the faith and that's what he does. But what's interesting, and I point this out, and I'll probably point this out at the annual meeting as well, They never got up that morning with the intention of going to the temple, performing a miracle, gathering a crowd, and preaching the message. They just shared the faith as the opportunities presented themselves. They recognized that every day was pregnant with opportunities to share the good news. And they seized those opportunities. Carpe diem. But when you get to Acts chapter 13, for the first time in the history of the church, the church is no longer being reactive, it's being proactive. We're told that the church set aside two men, Paul and Barnabas, and sent them off with the specific purpose of evangelizing areas that had never heard the gospel before. We're not going to be reactive, we're going to be proactive. So Acts chapter 13 is a real turning point in the life of the early church. It's the beginning of the missionary journeys, and you and I are sitting here today because of Paul's and Barnabas' willingness to go out and share the good news. They were mission-minded. So Paul went off on his first missionary journey. It was a relatively brief one. I'll I'll show you in a moment on the map how he did that. But it was uh, a relatively brief mission. After he comes back from that first mission, he and Barnabas talk about going on a second missionary journey. And it was on this second missionary journey that the church in Philippi is established. It's going to be a new mission field. It's going to be a new alignment of missionaries as well. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have a falling out. I'll tell you about that in a moment. And Paul takes with him a new companion, a fellow by the name of Silas. It also is a missionary journey that has a new strategy. From here on out, Paul is going to focus his attention almost exclusively on the major cities of the ancient world, the major metropolitan areas. Paul is strategic. I think this is one of the things that as the church we have to get serious about, being strategic. We can't do everything. 
You know, one of the things that will exhaust you as a Christian if you try to do everything. On one occasion, Jesus said to the disciples who said, well, you know, the money that this woman has taken and anointed you, uh, this perfume that she's used to anoint you with, that, that, that could have been taken and sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus' response is, the poor you will always have with you. What is he saying? He said, there will always be more need than you have resources. <laughs> now, that's not true of God. God's resources are limitless. But it is certainly true of us. The need is always going to be greater than our resources. So what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to be strategic in our approach, and Paul was strategic in his approach. He's going to focus almost exclusively on the major metropolitan areas of the ancient world. He didn't do that on the first missionary journey, but he does it on the second and subsequent missionary journeys. But it's on the second missionary journey that Paul discovers that there are a number of closed doors to him. You know, we often pray that God will lead us by open doors. But do you know that God sometimes leads us by closed doors? When we say, Lord, lead us, oftentimes the way God does that is not by opening doors to us, but by closing doors to us. And we're going to see that that was the case with the Apostle Paul. So let me just put a map up here on the screen for those of you who like maps and for whom this may prove helpful. Um, Paul started off on his missionary journeys here in Antioch. This is the church described in Acts chapter 13 that sent off Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. Uh, one of the things you'll notice is that there were actually two Antiochs in the ancient world. This one up here to the north is Pisidian Antioch. It's in modern-day Turkey today. This is Antioch in Syria. Uh, this was one of the most important centers of Christian life in those very early days. If you read through the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus Christ are first called Christians here at Antioch. Up to that point, they've been called the followers of the way. But now they're called Christians. What does the word Christian mean? You know this. Little Christ or Christ ones. So for the first time, they were called little Christ at Antioch. That is to say, the way they lived their life, the way they acted, was a reflection of their Lord. There can be no higher tribute paid to a person than that. So this was the church that was established early on, uh, in large measure as a result of Paul's own work as a persecutor of the church. The Christians were scattered from Jerusalem, which is down here to the south, and they fled up here to Antioch. A Christian presence was established. Paul, this just goes to show you God has a sense of humor, Paul, who had persecuted the church and was responsible for the creation of this church, then gets called to be one of their pastors years later. And it's this church to whom God speaks and says, send out Paul and Barnabas. Their first missionary journey, they go from Antioch down the coast to a port city called Seleucia. Am I in the way for some of you? And they take a boat across to the Isle of Cyprus. They evangelize the Isle of Cyprus. Then they go back up to the continent to Pamphylia. They travel to Antioch, preach the gospel there, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. In every single one of those places, Paul is persecuted. In the case of Lystra, the opposition is so great that they actually physically attack him, beat him with stones, and drag him outside the city in an unconscious state left for dead. And that's the first missionary journey. Is it a wonder that he ever went on a second missionary journey. But he did. He did. 
After they finished this first missionary journey, they reported back to the church in Antioch. They were summoned to a church council in Jerusalem to talk about the ministry among the Gentiles. And then they decide that they're going to go off on a second missionary journey. But here's the problem. Paul and his companion, Barnabas, who went with him on that first missionary journey, have a falling out. Imagine that, Christians not getting along. But Paul and Barnabas had a falling out. What was the falling out about? One of Barnabas's relatives. When they went off on that first missionary journey and they went down here to the Isle of Cyprus, they took with them a young man by the name of John Mark, the author, it's believed, of the Gospel of Mark. He was a nephew, it's believed, of uh, Barnabas. Uh, he went down there. When they reached the Isle of Cyprus, as they were preaching around, they faced some opposition. Uh, some rather intense opposition, right at the very beginning. And we're told that when they decided to go back up to Pamphylia and on, on into the rest of the continent, into this area of the Roman province of Galatia, we're told that John Mark decided he'd had enough. He'd had enough of this. And so he goes back home. So when it comes time to do the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas get together. They're talking about where they're going to go. They decide they're going to go back. They're going to go the opposite route, but they're going to go back through the churches that they had already established. Even though they face persecution, they have great love for the Christians that are there, for these fledgling believers, these, these fledgling communities that are there. So they're going to go back, and uh, Barnabas at some point says to Paul, and I'd like to take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no way. And Barnabas says, well, why not? He's my nephew, and he's got a heart for this. And Paul says, because he quit. And, John Mark says, and Barnabas says, well, you know, I mean, everybody has a moment of weakness, Paul. You've had moments of weakness. And Paul says, I understand, but this is no job for quitters. Whatever happened, this conversation goes on. It becomes so intense that they part company. And what happens is Barnabas takes with him John Mark, and they get down to Cyprus which is where Barnabas was from, and they evangelized there. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that ultimately Paul and John Mark are going to be reconciled. And Paul will speak of him as a great soldier of the cross, of the cross later on in his writings. But here at this point, these two great men, these powerhouses for the gospel, part company. But this is a Romans 8.28 moment. God working all things together for good, because here they are parting company over John Mark but what it does is it doesn't hinder the gospel. God is not going to let that happen. It actually serves to advance the gospel because now you have missionaries going south as well as north. So Paul takes with him a new companion, Silas. They travel from Antioch up through what is now modern-day Turkey, through Paul's hometown of Tarsus, that's where he was from, to Derbe, to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. And then it was Paul's intention to go south to Ephesus which was one of the most important cities of the ancient world. Some of you have been with me to Greece. You've been to Ephesus. We went on to Turkey, and you actually had an opportunity to see it, one of the most well-preserved cities in all of antiquity. It is an extraordinary place. It was even more impressive in Paul's day. That's where he wanted to go. He's being strategic. But he writes that for one reason or another, the Holy Spirit prevented him from going to Ephesus. Now, we don't know what that means except that something was provoked within his spirit that said you should not go to Ephesus. 
So at that point, the door being closed to Ephesus, Paul decides that he will go north into Phrygia. But then he says, the Holy Spirit prevented me from going there. So he couldn't go south. He couldn't go north. There was no purpose in going back where he'd already been. The only thing he could do was what? Continue on in the direction that he was going until eventually he reaches the coast at Troas. God leading by closed doors. If God closes a door in your life, don't assume that it's punishment. It may be preservation. And that was the case with the Apostle Paul. So Paul ends up here at Troas at the coast. What am I going to do? I run out of space. I can't go north. I can't go south. I can't go east. And here I am. I'm at the coast. At which point Paul has a vision. All of this is recorded in the book of Acts of a man from Macedonia. This is the Roman province of Macedonia over here. And the vision is of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so Paul and his companions cross the Hellespont and step foot on the European continent. And for the first time, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to Europe. So that's where the European mission begins. Paul travels over here to Neapolis, and then the next place of any consequence is Philippi. So this is his second missionary journey, and it's on this second missionary journey that he comes to this remarkable city, Philippi, where he is going to have a relatively brief but eventful ministry. The city of Philippi. It was established in the 4th century B.C. by Philip of Macedonia. This is the father of the famous Alexander the Great. And the Macedonians had ruled over this area for about 200 years, but in the 2nd century B.C. the Romans came in and they conquered it. And land was given to those soldiers who had assisted the Romans in the conquering of the territory. They were given as as a reward for their faithfulness, land grants. And they establish this city there. So Philippi was originally established by former soldiers of the Roman army. It became a Roman colony, which was a special status bestowed upon it, which meant that it enjoyed, the citizens of Philippi enjoyed all of the privileges of somebody living in the imperial capital at Rome. So this was a very high status that was accorded to the people of Philippi. It was located on the Via Ignatia, uh, one of the major trade routes, one of the major routes between Rome and the eastern part of her empire. Not a big city, but an important city. Because it was a Roman colony, they prided themselves on being Romans, and they imitated Rome in every way, politically, socially, even architecturally. The buildings were built to look like the buildings in the capital in Rome. So these people took great pride on their connection with the capital. In fact, they were so Roman that when Paul arrived there, he discovered there was no synagogue. Now, when Paul went into a new city to preach the gospel, part of his way of doing this was always to seek out a synagogue. And he would go to the synagogue because at least people there 
had a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And he knew that if he could go there, he could use the Old Testament scriptures as a springboard to tell the story of Jesus Christ. I mean, Isaiah, the, the, the suffering servant. There's no better picture of Jesus Christ in all of scripture. And it's an Old Testament depiction. So Paul would always go into the synagogue. He gets to Philippi and he discovers there's no synagogue there. Now what does that mean? That means there were not even 10 Jewish men living in Philippi at that time because it took 10 men to, pro to provide a quorum in order to create a synagogue. So there weren't even 10 Jewish men living in Philippi. This is a very different kind of city than any of the others that Paul had visited up to this point. So what does he do? Well, he hears that there are a group of women who may be Jewish or may be interested uh, in monotheism, and they're worshiping down by the river. And so he goes down by the river, and he encounters these women, and he preaches the gospel to them. And the first convert in Europe, we're told, is a woman by the name of Lydia, who's from Thyatira. Now, if you remember Thyatira, that's one of the churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches. She was a merchant woman. She was a seller of purple goods. And Paul converts her. I like to say that the man from Macedonia, Paul had that vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. The man from Macedonia was actually a woman. And it was Lydia. So Paul spends uh, some weeks there uh, in Philippi, preaching the gospel, teaching. And uh, everything seems to be going along fairly well. But then something happens. And what happens is this. As he's preaching, uh, he is accosted one day by a young girl. She is a young girl who we're told was possessed of a spirit of divination. That's the way the New Testament describes it, spirit of divination, which is to say she was demon-possessed. And she was a slave girl. And she kept following Paul and Silas wherever they went, shouting at the top of her lungs, These men are servants of the Most High God. They have come to show you the way to be saved. Now here's what's interesting. She's a slave girl. She's demon-possessed. But everything she's saying was true. Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God. And they had come to show people the way to be saved. But let me tell you something. If you are looking... For a character witness, a demon-possessed slave girl is not what you're hoping for. <laughs> and so what does Paul do? He turns around and he rebukes the spirit, and it comes out of her, and she is put into her right mind. Hallelujah. Good news for her. Bad news for her owners. Because we're told they made a great deal of money by this girl's powers to foretell the future. So they were using her. She was a cash cow for them. And now Paul has cast out the demon and they can't make any more money. And, and there's something else in this. Those of you who have been with me to Greece and we stood there on the site, right there in Philippi, in the ruins of the city, and we, we actually read this lesson. Something else that's really interesting about it is that when it says this girl was possessed of the spirit of divination, that's not actually what it says in Greek. What it actually says in the Greek is that she was possessed of the spirit of Pythona. The spirit of the python. The spirit of the snake. Now, the reason for that is one of the Greek and Roman gods who was associated with the snake was Apollo. 
Uh, there are lots of stories about Apollo and the snake. Some suggest that he turned himself into a snake on one occasion. Um, other stories say that he actually killed a great python, threw it down into the crevice at Delphi, and the fumes from the decaying carcass of this great snake is what put the oracle into a trance. But not far from Philippi, there was a temple dedicated to the Pythian Apollo. So the belief among the people in that town, at least, was that this girl was not just possessed of some sort of demon, she was possessed of the spirit of the god Apollo. And they took great pride in Apollo. They were Romans, remember. And so what does Paul do? He comes along, and in the name of his God, Jesus Christ, who was crucified by the Romans as an enemy of the Roman state, in the name of that Jesus Christ, he casts out this spirit of Apollo. So you've got that undercurrent going on as well. Well, the masters are furious. They go to the magistrates and they say this. These men are Jews. They have come from off. And they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to practice. Now, none of that was true. They were from off, but they were not advocating customs unlawful for Romans to practice. That was a bunch of baloney. It was a trumped-up charge, but it stuck. And Paul and Silas find themselves thrown into jail. And they're locked away. They don't know if they're going to get out. Let me tell you something about prison in the ancient world. We're going to talk about Paul being in prison because he was on more than one occasion. There were no prisons or penitentiaries in the way that we have them today. There were no such long-term prisons. There were jails and they were basically holding facilities until you came to trial. And one of two things was going to happen at trial. You were either going to be acquitted or you were going to be found guilty. And if you were found guilty, you were either going to pay a fine, you were going to do hard labor, or you were going to be executed. But there was none of this life sentence business. There was none of that in the ancient world. So when Paul is thrown into jail, this is a serious offense. Sedition is what he's being accused of, undermining Roman authority in a Roman city among people who pride themselves because of their connection to Rome. So Paul and Silas know there's a very good chance they are not going to see another day. And yet you know the story. They're there in that prison cell, and instead of being fearful, they are singing. Singing hymns and praising God. And the jailers are listening to all of this. They think that they're crazy. But in the middle of the night, a great earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison. Their chains fall off. The doors come off their hinges. The jailer rushes in. The lights are out. He assumes that his charges have escaped. He's a Roman jailer. He knows that if he has lost his prisoners, he must forfeit his own life. So he pulls out his sword. He's ready to commit suicide when all of a sudden Paul cries out for the darkness, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer calls for lights. He comes in. He sees Paul and Silas. He'd been listening to their hymns. He realizes what has happened. It's a divine deliverance. He falls trembling before Paul, and he asks what I think is the most direct question in all Scripture. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, to his eternal credit, doesn't give him a lesson on theology. He gives the most direct answer in all of Scripture. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. 
And we're told that that man took them out, washed their wounds, and he and his entire family were baptized. And the church in Philippi was born. That's how it happened. Now, the next day, they bring Paul and Silas out for trial. Paul has a trump card, and he throws it down. Is it lawful to arrest without charges or to beat a Roman citizen? Of course, these were Romans. Of course not. Paul says, well, then why have you done it to us? Because we're Roman citizens. At which point, they're very nervous. And they, they, they get together, the magistrates, they talk about this, and they decide they've got to release them. They just, they just want them to get out. And uh, Paul says, well, thank you very much for releasing us, but it's not going to be that simple. We want a police escort out of town. <laughs> and uh, basically, they get it. <laughs> and uh, Paul and Silas move on from there. But that's the beginning of the church in Philippi. Now, you might say to yourself, man, if you've got an experience like that, I never want to go back to that place. I'll be glad to see it in the rearview mirror. But what is interesting is that Paul did not forget the Philippians. He didn't forget those Christians that were there. There were only a handful of them. Maybe that jailer and Lydia and a few others, but he never forgot them. He'd become their father in God. And in spite of all the opposition that he had faced, he nevertheless decided to go back and visit them again. He did make a return visit. It's described in Acts chapter 20. He made it on his third journey. But the point is that a church was established there, and that church would support Paul monetarily throughout the rest of his ministry. So it can start off small, my friends, when we share the faith, and it can grow into something very important and powerful. Well, what happens is that Paul eventually, after a second journey and a third journey, eventually ends up back in Jerusalem. He's been collecting money for the church there, and he is arrested in Jerusalem. We don't have time to go into all the details there. He gets arrested in Jerusalem on false charges that he had brought Gentiles into the temple precincts. That wasn't true, but that was the charge brought against him. He finds himself arrested once more and taken up to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been to Caesarea Maritima. It was the headquarters of the Roman governor in the province. And Paul was taken there. He should have had, as a Roman citizen, a swift trial. But the Roman governor really didn't know what to do with him, and Paul was incarcerated for two years without a trial. Finally, the governor is recalled to Rome. A new governor is brought in. Paul stands trial before him. This governor is so new to Judea, he doesn't have any idea what to do with Paul. So Paul, realizing that his work is being hindered, does what every Roman citizen has a right to do. He appealed to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to the emperor himself. That's what Paul does. And he finds himself en route to the imperial capital, where the emperor's a very busy man, he finds himself under house arrest. This was the first imprisonment of Paul in Rome. Now, most of you probably know that Paul died a martyr in Rome. He was taken out along the Appian Way and he was beheaded. But that was at a later point. This was Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. He would be released and he would have some time of freedom. Some believe that he went as far as Spain. 
but then he would be arrested again, brought back to Rome, and it was during that second incarceration that he would ultimately be martyred. This is the first incarceration of Paul in Rome. He's had his wings clipped, if you will. He can't go anywhere. He really can't do anything. He's under house arrest. It's not a happy situation, but it's there in Rome, his wings clipped, that Paul writes this letter to this church that he's never forgotten, that he's only visited twice, first time to found it, second time to encourage it, and now he's writing this letter to them. And what is so amazing, as I said, it is a letter filled with joy and confidence and hopefulness. Paul's in prison. How could he be that way? How can we be that way? Well, that's what the letter is about. It's about discovering what that's really all about. We've got five minutes. Let me just give you an introduction here to the letter. Letter was written sometime around 60 A.D. That's very close to the events, incidentally. I think uh, John Dixon pointed this out to us. Um, the most well-attested to book in all of antiquity is the New Testament. This was written in 60 A.D. Paul has already been active for many years by this point. Jesus died in 33 A.D. We are very, very close to the events themselves. This is about as close as you can get to the events without actually being there. I shared with one of the Bible studies um, uh, about a week ago a story. It's a true story from my life. When I was the rector at St. David's in Chiral, maybe I've shared it with you before. When I was the rector at St. David's in Chiral, I went to visit a man. He was an older man. His name was Mr. Kimmel. Never forgotten him. He was a lovely man. But um, he had served in World War II. And I walked into his house, and he had a number of pictures there in the hallway as you walked down to the room where he was sitting. And one of them was a ship's company, a bunch of sailors on board uh, a ship during World War II. Being, and it's, you know, somebody loves history and military history, I was fascinated by that. So I asked him about it. And, you know, he's telling me about it and how he served on this ship during World War II. And then he told me this harrowing story. I've never forgotten it to this day. He said they were part of a convoy. They were making their way across the Atlantic, and they were attacked by a German sub, a U-boat. And he said um, they didn't know where it was, um, but depth charges are going over the side, he said, and they're sounding general quarters. The alarm's going off, and he said, everybody's running to their battle stations. I'm running to my battle stations. He said, I, run, I, I can see the captain talking to a knot of officers. And the captain is saying, where are they? Where are they? I said, it must have been terrifying. He said, it was. He said, because I knew exactly where they were. Seaman first class. How do you know where they were? He said, because at one point as I was running up the deck, I looked over the side and I could see a periscope right there. <laughs> and I am not kidding you, it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Because that's about as close as I could possibly get to that event without being there. When Paul's writing in 60 AD and we're reading his letters, we're about as close to these events as we can possibly get without being there. He's an eyewitness to these things, to the founding of this church. So it's a remarkable letter. It begins in typical format. Letters in the ancient world always began in precisely the same way, a little different from the way we write letters today. They always started with the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and then with some sort of greeting, grace and peace to you, for example. So that's how a letter begins. It begins in a typical way. Dear John, dear Mary, first century equivalent of that. 
But while it begins in a typical way, it has a distinctively atypical Christian focus. Look at how Paul describes himself here. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, the word that is translated there as servant is the Greek word doulos. It literally means bondservant. It means slave. That's how Paul describes himself as he's writing to the Philippians. He describes himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. That is precisely the same word that Paul uses to describe Jesus himself in Philippians chapter 2. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took the form of a servant, doulos, slave. Paul is saying, I am a slave to Jesus Christ because I am a follower of Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. And that is what we are called to be, Paul says, to be slaves for Jesus Christ. How many of you think of yourself as a slave if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? You know, so often what we are trying to do is to assert our rights, aren't we? All the things that we have a right to, all the things we are entitled to, but Paul sees himself It's not as though, as a Roman, he didn't have rights. It's not as though we don't have rights. It's just that you and I, as the followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus had rights. My goodness, he had a right to reign over the universe. But though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. He emptied himself and he gave up his rights. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do. If it will advance the cause of the gospel, we surrender our rights. And that's how Paul describes himself. Now, there's much more to say about this. And I have much more to say about this, as you can well imagine, but you're going to have to come back next week. Because just in this introduction, there are a number of things here that are very important. Paul talks about himself being a servant of Christ Jesus. He speaks about the saints that are in Philippi. And then he uses two terms that are very important. He uses the term overseer and the term deacon. The term overseer in Greek is the word episkopoi. Sound familiar to you? Episkopoi, episkopos, episkopol, translated bishops. And he also refers to the deacons, diakonos. We're going to talk about the role of those two groups in the life of the Christian church. But you're going to have to come back next week for that. So, Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul's letter to the Philippians. We thank you for his willingness to go into areas where the gospel had never been. The light shining in the darkness. We thank you that you closed the doors. Close the doors for Paul going south. Close the door for Paul going north. Eventually, those 
doors, at least the door to the south was open, but now you close the door that Paul had no choice but be funneled over to Europe. And most of us, being of European ancestry, we are sitting in this room today. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas and the work that they performed there in Philippi. We thank you for that fledgling church. We thank you for this letter and for the joy that is just permeating every page. May it be a joy that takes root in our hearts that we may be, like Jesus Christ, those who draw people in. And in coming to know us, they may come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.